welcome to Crime Shots. I'm Bree. And I'm Joe. So we discussed doing an update corner. So do we have any updates or questions or concerns from our last episode? I have zero. Okay, great. Then we're good to go. I mean, so far, sure. Till we get updates. And then we'll bring them. Right. Okay, so this case took me like, uh, I don't know, like two weeks to research, I think. A long, long time. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to jump right into it. Uh, Have you ever heard of a movie called The Town That Dreaded Sundown? No. All right, so the original film. Right. Well, I haven't seen it. Uh, so I don't really know, but I didn't want it to, like, alter my research in the case. Right. So, the original film was released in 1976, and then there was a remake in 2014. Nice. Any Anybody notable, or is it all... No. Just no names. I mean, people... 1976 may have been notable people, but I don't recognize any of them. Okay. Um, and I don't recognize anybody in the 2014 edition either. So what's this about? So it's a thriller horror film set in Texas. Uh, the movie's based on a hooded madman that stalks the lover's lane of Texarkana. In 1946, this man killed five people. Today, he still lurks the streets of Texarkana. Hey, you're you're spoiling the ending. No, 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 no. Is that the ending of the movie? I mean, it says it on the on the title of the movie. Right. I would assume that's not spoiling the ending. That'd be kind that's of spoiling the end bad. of the movie. I haven't seen the movie yet. Well, I'm just saying. I don't think that's it. Can't be the end of the movie because if you were spoiling it, you wouldn't put it on the on the on the cover of a movie unless you're in 1976 and you don't think about things like that right and this is true the coin toss um, we'll find out okay so per my father's request i have to get a little more detailed about location since you know we're from texas and we should know where these places are so according to google maps Texarkana is northeast Texas. Half of Texarkana is in Texas, and the other half is in Arkansas. Hence the name. Texarkana. Right. So Texarkana is known for having one of the most photographed federal courthouses. Again, I didn't know that, but he probably knows, you know, because we got roasted about the roses thing, so... Oh, Dad, yeah, he's he's probably been there. Yeah, he probably took a picture of it. (laughs) Yeah, probably. So I looked it up, and, uh, I mean, yeah, it's really cool. It's old. I don't know if I would, like, go out of my way to take a picture of it or anything. I was trying to figure out why it was the most photographed, and, I mean, really the only thing I can come up with is that... It sits on the state line, so, like, half of the building is in Texas, and then the other half is in Arkansas. That makes sense. I don't feel like it's the architectural design or anything that is what's drawing people to make it the most photographed federal courthouse, if that that makes sense. So Texarkana is the headquarters for the Theologically Conservative American Baptist Association. Theologically Conservative American Baptist Association? Yes. All right. Sounds excessive. I I, I feel like I should have researched what that is, but I didn't want to. Theologically Conservative American (laughs) Baptist. I'm just trying to fill all this in here. Right. Theologically I mean, conservative. I wonder what theologically conservative consists of. I don't, I don't know. Go ahead. Okay. So, uh, like I always do, the list of notable people. It's too long, so I just picked like a couple of them out. 
Okay, so we have Joe Anderson, NFL wide receiver. Charles Pierce, the film director. Otis Williams, who was a musician and a member of The Temptations. I just, I feel like if I was notable, I'd wish I was more notable than that. There's just a, none of those are. I mean, I get it. They're slightly famous. Most D-list. of them. Most of them are football players. Okay, so the five million dollar box office film obviously took place in Texarkana. So it's like your typical horror film that has been like recreated over and over and over again. So basically, you have your couples that are out messing around, and they're attacked and murdered. Nice. So what some people may not realize is that this movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, was actually based on real events known as the Moonlight Murders. So have you ever heard of that? Negative. Really? Nope. We'll piece it all together later, and then you'll understand. Okay. Okay, so on February 22nd, 1946, Jimmy and his girlfriend Mary decide that they're going to go on a double date to the movies. They probably referred to it as the picture show back then, 1946. Yeah, in 46 for sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what Gigi would have called it. <laughs> so Gigi may have called it like the, the picture reels, I don't know. <laughs> So Jimmy Hollis was born September of 1920, and at the time he was an insurance agent living in Texarkana. So his girlfriend, Mary LeRae, was actually from Hooks, Texas. And Hooks is 17 miles west of Texarkana if you take I-30. So if you take US-82, it's only 14 miles, but it does take longer that, that way. Gotcha. Anyway. So Jimmy and Mary double date with his brother Bob and his girlfriend. So they go to the movie, and then afterwards, Jimmy drops Bob and his girlfriend off at their houses. Somewhere around midnight. Jimmy and Mary decide that they're going to go park. <laughs> okay, so they're going park it. Word. So they decide to hit up a dirt road known locally as the Lover's Lane. It's that area. Right. They actually end up just off of Robison Road. Robison? Robison. Robison? Mm-hmm. I know, I know somebody named Robison. I think it's actually Robison. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I'm not that saying Robison. this is Robison. I'm just saying I think that person was Robison. But I know. Okay. Continue. So, the location is like... In an unpaved section, like a dirt road, away from all the houses. You know, trying mm-hmm. to get some privacy. Mm-hmm. And according to Google Maps, there's not really much left unpaved there anymore. And the Texarkana Junior College is actually right off of that road. Gotcha. So this particular road is between Interstate 369 and downtown. It's considered the metropolitan area. Right. Okay, so Jimmy and Mary, they're parked up on this dirt road with little houses around when a man comes up to the car. He shines a flashlight through the window at the couple. And the dude is wearing a white cloth over his head. It's described as a pillowcase with holes cut out to see through. And I'm gonna be honest. It it look it looks like KKK. Yeah, that's, that's it's not like. a good look. Not it's a not, good look. Right. Yeah, like the only thing I can picture is like, have you ever seen that movie, The Django Unchained? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. When they're like riding up on horses and they're all the KKK with them, <laughs> and he's like, I can't see shit out of this thing. <laughs> anyway, so uh, the guy shines a flashlight through the window of the car. Jimmy thinks that this guy must be, like, trying to play a joke on his friend and they just have the wrong guy. So he tells him, like, hey, you have the wrong car. Yep. So Hooded Dude says, look, I don't want to kill you, fella, so do what I say. And he points a pistol at him. So Hooded Dude tells them both to get out of the car. And then he tells Jimmy to take off his britches. Which he does. 
and then he's struck in the head by Hooded Man's pistol. He's actually hit so hard over the head that it fractures his skull. Pretty harsh. So Mary, of course, freaks out. And at this point, she thinks that this hooded guy is trying to rob them. So she grabs Jimmy's wallet and shows the guy, like, hey, we don't have any money. So Hooded Dude proceeds to hit Mary over the head, but not as hard as he hit Jimmy. Just enough to make you go, ow. Right. So he tells her to stand up and run. So Mary starts running. So if she's running, at most, she's disoriented from the hit. Yeah. So she comes up to a car that's parked, similar to how, like, her and Jimmy were parked on the dirt road. But she looks, and there's nobody inside the car. And then about that time, the hooded guy pops up again. He stops her, and he's like, why are you trying to run away? Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised um, he let her go. Like, I don't understand where this is going. It doesn't seem like he has Um, a plan, or at least not a good one. Right, well, he hasn't seen the movie yet, so he doesn't have anything. That's true. So he proceeds to sexually assault Mary, and then when the sexual assault is over, Mary takes off running again. She comes up on a house, and she wakes up the homeowners, and they help her call the cops. Meanwhile, there's a couple driving by where Jimmy was left, They see him, so they rush to go find a phone so that they can call the cops. Okay, so Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Presley and some backup officers, including Texas City Chief of Police Jackson Runnels, drive out to Richmond Road to find Jimmy alive and conscious. Okay. Sheriff Bill served as the sheriff from 1944 to 1946 in Bowie County. Bill Presley was born April 25th, 1895 in Bowie County. He was a World War I veteran, and during his term in elected office, he served as the county commissioner, treasurer, and the sheriff. Wow. Man of many hats. Right. So, Jackson Reynolds was born in 1897 and served in law enforcement for 30 years. So, Bill and Jackson had been friends for years, and they were both the first on the scene. So, when Bill and Jackson arrive on scene along with the other officers, there was no sign of the hooded dude. Yeah. But both Jimmy and Mary survived the attacks. So let, let me recap here. So this guy shows up, mm-hmm. points a gun at him, tells him to get out, tells the guy to drop his pants. Mm-hmm. His britches. And then hits him in the head with a, well, britches. Mm-hmm. Hits him in the head, head with a pistol. I don't understand what the pants thing was about. Maybe. It seems odd. And then he tells her to run. Yeah. And then he chases her down. Yeah, and when he catches her, he's like... Oh, but what are you running from? Yeah, what are you running for? Yeah. Weird guy. Agreed. Especially, like, wearing basically a pillowcase on your head. I wonder if it actually looked like in the movies where he was, like, fighting to, like, be able to see and, like, moving it around (laughs) and stuff. That's got to be silly looking when you're running. Right. And that's, like, all I can picture in my head. But it's, I mean, it's true, right? It's There's nothing keeping that thing over your eyes, so. Right. I feel like that had to be kind of almost laughable. If he wasn't a complete weirdo slash psychopath. Right. So Mary suffers minor head injuries. And she tells police that she was attacked by a man with a white hood over his face. And he appeared to be an African-American male, approximately six feet tall. Jimmy, on the other hand, was hospitalized for several days due to his head injuries. Jimmy tells police that they were attacked by a six-foot-tall man wearing a white hood over his face, and he appeared to be a white male. Oh, wow. After taking the witness statements, Sheriff Bill concludes that Mary and Jimmy were probably attacked by somebody that they knew, but they were embarrassed to admit it. What? Yeah. I don't feel like that's a viable option. Well... That's how Sheriff Bill felt about it at the time. 
I could so just see him both sh- dying kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Jimmy eventually moves to Louisiana and he gets married. And he has seven children. He went to school and received several different degrees and ended up working for the government. Then, in 1971, he played Vice President Andrew Johnson in a movie about the killing of President Lincoln. Wow. After that, he moved to Houston to work for NASA. And this is the guy with multiple skull fractures. Yes. Yeah, see, kids? You can do anything you put your mind to. (laughs) (laughs) Even after brain trauma. Yeah, well. Anyway, uh, he eventually passed away at age 54. Kind of young. I feel like that is extremely young to have accomplished all that. Yeah. Well, this is uh, the 40s, so this was, what, the 70s by the time he died? Uh, sure. So. I mean, yeah, I get it. So anyway, uh, Mary went to live in Oklahoma with family after the attacks. So she struggled with the attacks for years and then eventually died of cancer in 1965 at the age of 38 in Montana. It's sad. Yes. There were never any suspects arrested in relation to their attacks. Damn. Okay, now, March 24th, 1946. Just one month later, Richard Griffin and his girlfriend Polly Moore end up on that same lover's lane. It's the same road that Jimmy and Mary were on, but it's like a different section, like a different part of it. They're actually closer to Highway 67. Richard Griffin was born August 31st, 1916. So at this point in time, he would be like 29. Richard was in the Seabees. Like the Navy Seabees? Well, of course you know what it is. I had to look it up. So for people like me that don't know random stuff for no reason, I'll tell y'all what it is. The United States Naval Construction Battalions, better known as the Navy Seabees. Makes sense. I didn't, I never put those two together, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The Navy Seabees formed the U.S. Naval Construction Force, and the Naval Construction Battalions were developed as replacements for civilian construction companies and combat zones after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Today, the Seabees have many special task assignments, starting with Camp David and Naval Support Unit at the Department of State. Richard is in contracting services, and since he was discharged from the Seabees, he's now living with his mother. Polly Ann Moore was born November 10th, 1928. So at this point, she's around 17 years old. And he was how uh, old? 29? Yeah, 29. He's 29, she's 17. It's not really that crazy back then. I did. I mean... I just feel should. like he's failing in multiple, multiple departments here. Well, she she's something special because she actually graduated from high school early in 1945 at the age of 16. That's even right. more uncommon. Okay. After graduation, she had moved in with her cousin and had been working for the Red River Arsenal, which is like it's like an army depot. Mm-hmm. So Richard and Polly had been seeing each other for about six weeks when they decided to go park on Lover's Lane. The next morning, a couple driving by saw the two parked in their 1941 Oldsmobile, and it looked like they had fallen asleep. So the couple driving by decided to pull over and see if they need help. There had recently been a lot of rain in the area, and they were thinking that maybe uh, these two had gotten their car stuck and they needed assistance. Right. So they immediately noticed that they're not stuck in the mud, and these two are not sleeping. So they call the authorities. When authorities arrive, they find Richard kneeling on or between his front seat. And his pockets were turned inside out. Richard had been shot in the back of the head. Kneeling? Right. On the front seat. I'm trying to picture this. Oh, I know. I uh, looked up the car to see the placement of the seats. That's why I felt it important to tell you what kind of car it was. 
I'm sure it's I'm got not. separate front seats. No, no. No? Mm, bench seats. What? Mm-hmm. Look up 1941 Oldsmobile. No, I believe you. I'm just trying to picture this now, and it's like, so, kneeling. Yeah. Kneeling the only thing on... I can think is that he's, I guess he's just, he's on the seat, and he's sitting on his knees. Uh, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it's weird, though. Right. And uh, I'll be completely honest with you. So I've seen some pictures of him in the newspaper articles, and he kind of looks like a little kid. Like a baby. Like He looks like a little boy. Hmm. So I just thought, I thought it was so strange because he looks like a little kid. Anyway, uh, so Polly is found face down in the back seat. And she had also been shot in the back of the head. Evidence showed that they had both been shot with a thirty-two caliber revolver. You remember the other day when I was asking about calibers? Yep. However, blood stains and drag marks outside of the vehicle indicate that they were shot outside of the car, then placed there after death. Okay, so that makes more sense. So the positioning was odd because they were basically stuffed in there. Right. Yeah. Due to the large amounts of recent rainfall, there was little other evidence that could be preserved. It's important to note at this point that the attack on Jimmy and Mary is not believed to be related to this double homicide at this point. I mean, the cops just don't believe it? Well, I think that they just weren't putting two and two together. Okay. It's important to note that many of the articles say that they believe Polly was raped. However, she was embalmed before they could examine her. And based on the fact that she was fully clothed when she was found, investigators put in their official police report that there was no way they could determine if she was raped or not. And, you know, I've heard a lot of stories, too, about obviously back then they didn't have much technology. And I've heard plenty of stories where they assumed or didn't assume one way or the other. And they said, basically, it's really hard to tell after death. Like it just, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't have a whole lot of the technology needed to really prove that. So, Right, which is why I felt like it was important to note that in the police report, it says no. But many of the articles that you read is like, yeah, she was. But the police report says no. Right. By the end of March, authorities had interviewed at least 60 people and had posted a $500 cash reward. Out of the 60 people interviewed, there were three suspects, but were they were ultimately cleared. And nothing happens. I mean, they didn't have any evidence, though, right? I mean... No, not really. I feel like that's a... There's a dead end there. Right, kinda, yeah. So Richard was laid to rest in Union Chapel Cemetery in Cass County, which is south of Texarkana. Polly was laid to rest in Pleasant Hill Cemetery, which is also in Cass County. Now, April 14th, 1946, just about two or three weeks after the murder of Richard and Polly, two more bodies are found. Betty Jo Booker was born June 5th, 1930, so that makes her like 15 years old at this time. Mm. So Betty was one of four officers in her high school band. She played the alto saxophone and was a member of the Rhythmares, a local band that played like proms and stuff. The Rhythmares. Is that a thing? I mean, apparently. And I'm guessing they're all girls? I don't know. I didn't look. To see if it was just her or like I'm not not just I don't mean there was other people, but I didn't look to see the band members. Uh, is, it, but I didn't. is it spelled M A R E S or I R E S? M A I R E S. So would you go with Rhythm Mares? No, yeah, I just That's... I was thinking I was thinking mares like female horses. Oh. Like rhythm oh. mares. But if that's not oh, I don't that's really know really where they're going sense. with this. That totally makes sense. But, um, well done, Joe. Well done. Yeah. Probably <laughs> um, wrong, so so hey. Can't be any more wrong than me. So Betty had won awards in scholastics, literature, and music. 
She was also Little Miss Texarkana in 1934. On April 13, 1946, Betty was with her band, the Rhythmares, playing a gig at the VFW, and that ran into the early hours of April 14th. Betty's friend, Paul Martin, picked her up around 2 a.m. from the VFW, and they were headed to a slumber party. Paul Martin was born May 8, 1929. So at this time, he's like 16. And their parents are cool with... Okay, so I was wondering this too, and I'm not sure of the circumstances regarding the slumber party. So I don't know if both of them were going, or if he was just giving her a ride. I'm not really sure the circumstances there. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. But uh, Paul had recently, had previously been attending the Gulf Coast Military Academy in Mississippi, and then he had recently just moved back to Kilgore. But Paul and Betty had been friends since, like, kindergarten. Like, their whole lives. Um, Paul's body was found first around 6.30 a.m. on April 14th. He was found lying on his left side on the north edge of North Park Road. So North Park Road is south of I-30 and east of Spring Lake Park. So they were at, I'm guessing they were at Spring Lake Park when this went down? Is that the assumption? I mean, there nothing says that, so there's no way to determine that. All we know is that he, he was supposed to pick her up and take her to a certain location, and they never got there. And when authorities spoke to friends of theirs, they were pretty adamant about stating that they were not parking because they didn't do that kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Of course not. Investigators say that Paul had been shot four times. Through the nose, through the left fourth rib from his back, in his right hand, and through the back of his neck. Mm. That was messy. Betty's body was found about two miles away from where they found Paul at around 11.30 a.m. She was found on her back, fully clothed, and had her right hand in her pocket. She'd been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the face. Evidence showed that they were both shot with a 32 caliber revolver. Paul had been driving a 1946 Ford Club Coupe, and it was found three miles away, parked outside of Spring Lake Park, with the keys still in it. So obviously, I was thinking that they were probably parked at the park, even though they say they weren't, or their friends say they weren't, and they were forced out of the car, and so on and so forth. Right. And I assume in an effort to try to preserve their reputation, you know, with it being the 40s and all, that they just... True, and she was slightly well-known. Right. Yeah. So they question several people, but not a whole lot is really coming of it, until they get a call from a pawn shop in Corpus Christi, Texas. Corpus is South Texas on the coastline. It's only about three hours from the Mexico border. Mm -hmm. So the owner of the pawn shop says that a man came in trying to sell an alto saxophone. He says that he heard about the murders and how one of the victims played the alto saxophone and it was still missing. So investigators go down to Corpus And they decide that they want to talk to this guy. So they find the guy that was trying to sell the saxophone at a hotel. After purchasing a forty-five caliber revolver at another pawn shop. Hmm. So they search through his stuff and they find no saxophone. I mean, does that mean he sold it at another pawn shop? I don't know. I just know know they never found it. Hmm. They did find a bag of bloody clothes. Yeah. But ultimately, they find out that he had gotten into a fight at a bar the night before and, like, got all bloodied up. And that's where the blood on his clothes came from. And then he's cleared after his alibi checks out. And again, the investigation just kind of sits there. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Paul was laid to rest in Hillcrest Cemetery in Texarkana. Betty was laid to rest at Wood Lawn Cemetery in Texarkana. Obviously, news of all these attacks start to spread around Texarkana, and they are the front page of every newspaper. Um, Front page of the Texarkana Gazette stated, Teenage couple shot to death. Killed in double slaying. Now, just about three or so weeks after the murder of Betty and Paul, Texarkana falls victim to yet another horror story. On May 3rd, 1946, around 9 p.m., Virgil Starks and his wife Katie are chilling at home listening to the radio. Walter Virgil Starks was born April 3rd, 1909. So by this time, he's like 37. So Virgil is a farmer and a welder, and he does a lot of work like this for, like, people in the area and, like, just helps out. Side jobs. Right. So Virgil and Katie were married March 2nd of 1932. Catherine Starks was born September 25th, 1909. So by this time, she's, like, 37. And Virgil and Catherine had gone to school together, so they, like, grew up together and, you know, they get older, and naturally they get married, and so on and so forth. Yep. The couple lived on a ranch that was about 500 acres. And this ranch was off of Highway 67, which is a lot. What, 500 acres? Yeah. Well, back then, I don't think it was such a big deal. It's, you know, there's... I wonder what the population was back then compared to now. You know what I mean? Because it's, I feel like land was easier to acquire back then. I mean, yeah, but Texarkana has always kind of been a bigger city in Texas. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, super empty. Even back then it was, it was popping. Population of the U.S. in 1946 was 141 million. So. And what is it now? 360-ish. A good less, good bit less than half. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So Virgil and Katie both had family that lived almost on the property. It, it was like so close. It's around 9 p.m. on May the 3rd. And they're both just, like I said, hanging out listening to the radio. Katie decides that she's going to go ahead and go to bed. But Virgil stays in the sitting area, living room, whatever you want to call it, and he's still listening to the radio and reading the Texarkana Gazette, which with all this going on, he's probably reading about all of these murders in Texarkana. All of a sudden, two shots are fired through the window, hitting Virgil in the head. Katie hears glass break, so she goes back into the living room to see what's going on. And when she walks into the living room, she sees Virgil stand up, look at her, and then fall back down into his chair. Of course, she freaks out, runs over to him, and she sees that he had been shot and that he's dead. So Katie runs over to the wall crank phone to call for help. That's when two more shots come through the same window, hitting Katie in the face. But the shots don't kill her. What? Yeah. She struggles in the house for a little bit, but she can hear the shooter trying to get into the house. Ugh. So she takes off running outside. She ends up at a neighbor's house who gets a car and takes her to the hospital. So one of the bullets had entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other entered below her lip and was stuck underneath her tongue. Nice. Iron woman. Right. So that one that was stuck under her tongue had had broke her jaw and, like, splintered her teeth. So on on the way to the hospital, she offered one of her teeth that had a gold filling to the neighbor 
as like a thank you for taking her to the hospital. It's got to be one of those moments where it's just like, yeah, you, honey, you just you just weren't all there. OK, just calm down. I just feel Good like the, that's just such a I don't know, like such, such a sweet a, lady. Right. Such as I, I didn't want to say sweet, but like, I mean, oh, obviously man. she was Here's one of my right. teeth for helping me go to the hospital. There's gold in it. There's gold in there. Oh. Virgil was laid to rest at the Hillcrest Cemetery on Highway 67. Katie survived and eventually ended up marrying a man named Forrest Sutton. She passed away in 1994 and was buried next to Virgil. And Forrest is actually buried on the other side of her. I feel like we just skipped this whole thing. So nobody, nothing. Nobody was ever found. Nobody, nothing. No, no, nothing. It just happened and then everybody moved on. Well, I mean, they they had not found anything. How do you live like that? I can't imagine. I mean, you, ah, uh, I, I don't know how you carry on after something like that. Like, that's just, at that point. Like. How do you carry on after being shot in the face? Well, that's what I'm saying. How do you carry on after being shot in the face randomly after your husband just got shot in the head and then you just go get married to somebody else and you live the rest of your life out? Like, I feel like if there's no resolution to that, you're going to be worried. A bullet's going to come through any window at any point in time for the rest of your life and you're going to go insane. I feel like I would. How do you? I mean, that's true. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) All right. Miller County Chief Sheriff's Deputy Tillman Johnson is assigned to the case. Tillman was born in 1911 in Arkansas. He had started working for the Sheriff's Department in 1938 and had served two years in the military before returning home to work on this case. There were 12 people questioned about Virgil and Katie's attack, but no one was arrested. So at this point, we have three survived attacks and five dead. I mean, was there no information on who these 12 were and why they were questioned? Because I can't, I, it, I'm i trying to picture this, and I feel like they're just going around town asking people if they heard anything. 100% that's what had happened. Yeah. Like, I know that one of the guys questioned, like, wasn't it wasn't even warranted. He was just walking through a cornfield when they were searching the house. So again, of course, the newspapers just go nuts with reports. Even inadvertently giving this dude a name. Some of the newspaper articles were titled things like The Phantom Murders That Terrify Texarkana. Phantom Killer Sought for Six Murders. Return of Texarkana Phantom Feared as Men and Women Are Beaten. And so he's dubbed the Phantom Killer. Nice. By now, there are several different divisions of law enforcement involved. We have the local law enforcement, which is the Texarkana Police Department, the Bowie County Sheriff's Office, the Texas Rangers, and the FBI. The FBI is involved? Well, that's what was believed at the time. So most of the articles that you look up will say that the FBI was called in to investigate. And it wouldn't be unheard of for the FBI to be involved since it does cross state lines. Yep. But in 2020, the Texarkana Phantom Killer Moonlight Murders were released from the FBI vault. There's over 1,100 pages of documents. And the first half of those documents state that it was reported through the news outlets that the FBI was assisting in the investigation, when in fact, they only assisted in photographing one of the crime scenes. Wow. So they said they were involved, but they weren't involved. Not at that time. They didn't say they were involved. The newspapers were saying that they were involved. Because that's what local law enforcement was telling people. Does that make sense? So local law enforcement... Local law enforcement was saying that the FBI was involved when they weren't? Yep. Seems odd. Well, so what they were saying is, oh, we've called the FBI in to investigate. Right. 
when really they contacted them to help photograph the crime scene because they didn't have uh, experience technology. I mean, both really. So yeah, the first half of the documents are basically just saying that they weren't initially involved when it was reported that they were. Now they did get involved, but (laughs) they didn't get involved until way later. I was fascinated by reading the documents because, well, first of all, they're signed by J. Edgar Hoover. Like actually signed or like rubber stamp signed? No, they were signed. Wet signature. And now that I have been in the FBI database, they know everything about me. No. (laughs) Oh, you're saying you you fucked up, meaning there's different information than what you just gave. They know I'm looking. No, they know I'm looking at this stuff. They now have access to all my computers. (laughs) (laughs) So they don't give Um, a shit about us. They don't. Anyway, so on May 8th, it was announced that a German prisoner of war had escaped and was a person of interest in the case. So I got curious when it said a German prisoner of war had escaped. I was like, what in the world? World War II lasted from 1939 to 1945. And although the war had technically ended, the Moonlight Murders had only occurred months after. And there are reports of at least 425,000 German prisoners that stayed in 700 camps across the country. Many are reported to have escaped at some point or another, so I'm unsure why this particular person was labeled a person of interest in this case, but he was never found. Yeah. So then on Sounds May like 20- they're just grasping at anything they can find. Right, and especially at that time, half the country was had just got through fighting them, so of course they're going to try to accuse them. Right. On May 23rd, Ralph Bowman? Bauman? Bauman. Bowman. Spell it. B-A-U-M-A-N-N. Bowman. Bowman? Bowman. Okay, so Ralph tells the California authorities that he is the Texarkana killer. Ooh. Case closed. Hell yeah. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) He was in the Air Force as a machine gunner, but was discharged having been diagnosed psychoneurotic. Ooh. Which is no longer a diagnosis. Yeah, that seems like one of those, like, uh, yeah. There's something wrong with him, but we got to make a word up because we're not sure. Right. I mean, not that they know anything more about it nowadays. They just make up bigger words. Yeah. So Ralph says that he was in a coma, and when he woke up, his gun was missing. Mm. And in reading the news, he felt like he matched the description of the Texarkana attacker. So, of course, authorities go pick him up. They want to talk to him. And they find him shooting bullseyes. And he had just shot his 23rd in a row with a 22 caliber pistol. Wow. He was eventually ruled out as a suspect, noting that he was a mental case. Now, when you say he felt like he fit the description, there was a description? Because so far, the only description I've heard was a white guy or a black guy. With a hood over his head. Exactly. Six feet tall. Exactly. Which describes just about everybody. Right. So. So, He's ruled out. Yeah. So in June of 1946, Max Tackett found a car in a parking lot that had been reported stolen and may have been linked to one of the attacks in Texarkana. Max Tackett is an Arkansas State Police officer, and he's about 34 years old. He was a World War I veteran that moved to Texarkana in 1941 and had become a state police officer. Later, Max went on to become a special investigator and eventually the police chief in 1948. So, Max has tacked on some credentials. You said tacked on? I see what you did there. You didn't uh, you didn't see what you did there? No. I saw it before you saw it. I... No, it was a happy accident. So Max finds this stolen car. He remembers that 
one of the cars was stolen in the Phantom Killer case and had turned up later abandoned. And since this one was reported stolen from one of the other attacks, Max decides he's just gonna sit and see if someone shows up for it. And eventually someone does. So, a woman by the name of Peggy Sweeney comes back for the car. Peggy is about 21 years old, and she tells authorities that her and her husband had just gotten married in Shreveport, and they're selling stolen cars. Good good thing to be doing. Yeah. When asked where her husband was, she said that he was in Atlanta selling a different car. So, Peggy's arrested for auto theft. So Max decides to contact the police chief in Atlanta to see if that there's anything they can do to help. After explaining everything to the police chief in Atlanta, he asks him if he knew of anybody trying to sell a stolen car recently. Right. And he's like, actually, yeah. So Max and everybody load up to go to Atlanta. So Max speaks with the person that bought the stolen car and he asks him hey if i show you a lineup of people would you be able to point out the guy that sold you the car or can you describe him at all and the guy says no he wasn't that memorable no yeah he's like i don't you shake hands with your eyes closed i mean come on (laughs) well max decides he's gonna use the guy Apparently, the buyer uh, looked extremely memorable. So Max is like, you know what? I bet if the seller saw you somewhere, he would do everything he can to try to avoid you because he just sold you a stolen car. So Max takes the buyer and like starts like walking around town with him to where they could be seen everywhere. And what he's doing is he's trying to see if, like, they go into a place and somebody, like, freaks out and tries to run away from them, right? What? This seems weird. It's a weird, uh, I think we're grasping here. Well, maybe so, but they eventually end up at a bus station. And they're walking around the bus station and they see a guy bolt out the back door. And Max takes off after him. I just feel like this is a bad movie right here. Like, this is, I don't know. Max catches the guy on the fire escape. And it is none other than Peggy Sweeney's husband. What? Okay, hold on. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's and this is in husband. This is in Atlanta, right? Yeah. Huh? So we're in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. That's not a small town. No. By any means. You go there looking for a guy that's selling stolen cars. You find the guy that bought a stolen car who has mm-hmm. absolutely zero recollection of a person that sold him a stolen car. And you say, hey, I got an idea. We're going to drive around town with you in the car and see if we can't scare somebody up. And it works? Well, wow. I mean, they were walking around town. Yeah, but what? That's insane. How does that ever work? I mean, that's Max. He knows what's up. So Peggy's husband, Yule Sweeney. Yule. Y-O-U-E-L-L. Yule. Yule. Well, I don't know. I was thinking Y-U-L-E, like Yule, but I don't know. That's a weird... Yeah. It's all weird. This whole thing's weird. I feel like there's a good chance he was probably called Lee because his middle name is Lee. Seems legit. So Yule was born in Arkansas in 1917. He was the son of a Baptist minister, but he was known for having several run-ins with the law. Most of it involved auto theft, but he had been in trouble for counterfeiting. Nice. So he has a record. But when he's arrested, he doesn't really say much to the investigators. He just keeps saying that he doesn't want the electric chair. What? Yeah, so like he was just like, I don't want the electric chair. When he said that, though, Max was like, they're not going to give you the electric chair for stealing cars. Yeah. And he's like, because that's all they had him on so far. And he was like, we both know you have me for more than stealing cars. Wow. I feel like this dude is just charmed. Like, it's just everything's fallen in his lap. Well, Max? Like, how do you do this? Yeah, I mean, 
Or Yule. No. Max. Like, the guy just out of nowhere picks up... I mean, that's just... Seems well, like it's all... Well, let's see what happens, shall we? Okay. So Yule's not saying much, but Peggy's talking. Peggy tells investigators that her husband is, in fact, the Phantom Killer. And she provides details and tells them that he did all of it. She was even able to help them locate some of the victim's items that they had not even known were missing. What is her motivation for all this? Well, I mean, they have her arrested already for theft, and then they've arrested him for theft, and, you know, she could potentially be an accomplice if they try hard. I mean, yeah. I guess so she so she just narks. I guess she's hoping she gets a, she gets off. Maybe. Okay. So, investigators have Yule in custody, but what evidence do they have? Obviously, they have his wife's confession. They are able to prove that Yule owned a 32 caliber Colt automatic, but then gambled it away. They found a work shirt in Yule's room that they believe belonged to Virgil Stark. Because it had a laundry mark on it, and they think it says Stark on the laundry mark. In the pocket of the shirt, they found slag. Ooh. I had to look up what slag was. Yep. Why don't you tell the folks what slag is? It's, um, it's crystallized silica that forms on the outside of a weld. You gotta knock it off when you're welding. Which makes sense, because I said Virgil was a farmer and welder. Yep. Another thing investigators have is that the car that Peggy was arrested for stealing was the one from the murders of Richard and Polly. Wow. The rest of the evidence is just basically them saying stupid stuff incriminating themselves. Yeah. Alright, so here's the problem. Mm -hmm. None of the fingerprints collected are a match for Yule. Okay. I mean, were there a Uh, lot of fingerprints collected? There, there's a I kind of was under the impression there wasn't must, much. So there... there's a, yeah, there's a full palm print that they got from one of them. Hmm. But it, it doesn't match him. Or but, her. But in my head, well, it doesn't say that it doesn't match her. It just says it doesn't match him. Well, I mean, and depending on which, and we don't know which, we don't know which um, crime scene this came from. Because there were other people involved in these crime scenes. You know what I mean? There were people that stopped and came by and... Like, for yeah. the one, I mean, they right. found him in the car. They were going up to assist, or hopefully assist. Right. You never know. So, I mean, that, that's well, I wouldn't I mean, put they... a whole lot of stake in that. Well, so really, all the evidence that they have is they have that palm print, and they had gotten a flashlight that was found on the ground outside of the window where he had shot him. Through the window. Right. And there were a few bullet casings, but... Plus, we also have to remember, this is 1946, so I'm sure that everybody is wearing their gloves at the crime scenes. and Yeah, of course. So, there's really no telling what all's contaminated. Yeah. So that's one problem. The other problem is that they don't have a confession. He actually hasn't confessed to anything. I don't feel like you need it. Alright. With the amount also, of information they have. That might be true had it not been for this third problem. Peggy recanted her statement. Of course she did. So at the end of the day, they didn't really have enough to charge Yule for all of those murders. I mean, we still have the pistol, right? No. Or he didn't. they didn't find a pistol. They just found that he owned a pistol at some point. He, right, and he had gambled it away. But they got the shirt. Can't I guess they can't really prove much on the shirt, or technically they have no proof that it belonged to Virgil. They just suspect it. Wow. So they're not able to charge Yule with murder, but they do charge him with car theft as a habitual offender, and he receives life in prison for that. Wow. Wish they did that more often. However. Uh, he was released from prison in 1973 on the grounds that he did not have representation. Wish they did that less often. Yule died in a nursing home in 1994 at the age of 77. Mm. No one has ever been charged, and the Phantom Killer of Texarkana was never caught. Wow. And we never, I mean, 
the, as little evidence as was ever found. Who knows if it was one or multiple people or even not connected at all. Well, so here are my issues with the whole kit and caboodle. A 32 caliber was not used for every attack. Right. The last attacker had a 22 caliber. Right. So that doesn't really match the profile. And just based on the MO, right? It's totally different. I mean, this could be... I don't know how they even put those together unless right. it was... I mean, yeah, I don't... The only way you could put that together would be his wife saying, oh, he did all of them. Other than that... Right. Yeah, those aren't... They're not... In my head, they're not related. They can't... I mean... That's not to say somebody well, wouldn't do that, but it's a totally different... Everything's different about that. Everything is different mm-hmm. about that case. Exactly. So, another problem is that only the first couple that were attacked that survived was able to provide a description and the fact that he wore a cloth over his head. And that so, wasn't much of a description. Exactly. And so that brings me to another point of the victims don't coincide. So, the first few victims are found on the side of the road on Lover's Lane, and they're teenagers. And then the last is a couple at home, and they're an older couple. Mm -hmm. I can see how they would connect the first three attacks. Absolutely. They were in the same area, kind of. Right. And this last one just didn't even match, and they weren't even shot with the same caliber pistol. And you don't even know if it was a pistol. I mean, it... 22 could have been a rifle it could have been who knows but oh. and you've got to think though i mean as a cop back then mm-hmm. that had to suck i mean oh, yeah. my god you're not solving anything you're right. not solving anything you have no technology whatsoever no information no cameras no cell phones yeah. nothing right. so that had to be hard it's just a mess yep I also think it's important to note that it would appear like these murders were a crazy turn of events, but I don't think that's the case. Most of the newspaper clippings that I was able to pull up, they're not the only attacks in the clipping. Right, so they're just picking and choosing which ones they think are related to this, and then the rest of them just kind of go unmentioned? Well, so, like, I'll pull up one and it'll be, like, Phantom Killer Strikes Again. But the clipping right next to it is, like, Three Found Dead and Lake. What the hell? Yeah. How are these not all related? Everybody was murdered by the same person. Right. So, while I looked it up, and the 1940s in Texarkana was, like, a host to all things crime. Right? Right. So, like, one of them had, like, next to the article, it was, like, Man arrested in gangster murder. And then another one said, Man acquitted of strangling woman. <laughs> like, none of it's oh. like... None of... It's all, like, just horrible stuff. This sounds like something where the media got a hold of something. And it was such... I mean, they were selling so many newspapers. It was such a thing that it just... It just snowballed and they just kept adding to it. As much as right. best they could, you know. Right, which brings us to my next point about how the media took the story and turned it into their own thing. And now we have this masked madman on the loose that is sexually assaulting women and murdering them when that's a bit of a stretch of the truth. Right, right. And so the last little bit of WTF information, if you haven't had enough already... Rumor has it that in 1999, a woman called a family member of one of the victims, and they said that they were sorry for what their father had done. But Yule never had a daughter. Huh? Did this person say they were Yule's daughter? Or did this person just say they were sorry for what their father did and left it at that? That's all they said. That's... No, you're not. If you were, you would have mentioned who it was. Well, nobody ever looked into it because everybody that was involved was 100% sure that Yul Sweeney was the phantom killer and died in a nursing home in 1994. I mean, yeah, unless that person said who they're talking about, I feel like it's a prank call than anything. Like, that's, come on. You're not sorry about anything if you're just saying that and then you leave it there. You know what I mean? You have to at least explain yourself. I mean, I guess there could have been more to the conversation that we don't know about. I mean, I guess, but 
to me, if I were the family member of, you know, the victim here, I wouldn't have even put that out for everybody to, to hear unless I had the information in front of me. And I, you know, it, I don't know. That seems like, I don't know. It doesn't, yeah. I don't, I don't like that yeah. at all. There's a lot of people that think that Yul Sweeney didn't do anything and that these were all just random murders that were all completely unrelated. Which is highly possible. I mean, back then it totally could have been. Yep. Well, so that's the Moonlight Murders. Phantom killers slash killers slash who yep. knows. I'm still just boggled by the fact that they couldn't even get... I mean, you see somebody with a hood on and they're waving a gun around. You're going to know if they're white or black. That's not going to be hard to figure out. Well, so how do you get that wrong? Well, what it actually says is that the guy looked like he was either a dark skinned white guy or a light skinned black guy. Oh, I mean, I guess. So maybe he was Hispanic. I was going to say it was a Mexican. <laughs> yeah. All right. So tough case. Thanks for listening. Yeah. On to the next.